Coming up on this week's show, a famous tech brand is leaving the high street. Another console gets the handheld treatment. And we go inside the world of MSX with Vramez Victor. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the Amiga, we're going to tell you more about the incredible Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium, over 420 pages detailing more than 140 of the biggest titles on the platform. We'll talk more about that soon and check out their full range of retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 276, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And fantastic to have you joining us for another hour-ish of retro goodness, (laughs) which did actually, there was a review, a lovely review that we read the other week on on a website that said, the podcast is great, but you guys do sometimes stretch the definition of an hour. And you know what's really funny? (laughs) Because last summer, you know... I think it was Ravi was like, guys, like, we haven't, you know, we've, we're barely even the retro two hours at the moment. Like, we just, we keep going. And so the fact that we've got it to like, what, like an hour and 20 minutes on average is like us being like reserved. That's us like yeah. putting content. Yeah, you, you know, know what I mean? it is? Every week. It's, it's like Poundland. They now sell stuff that's more than a pound. Yeah. You, know? it's definitely like <laughs> you move on. You, know? <laughs> you, you move on to better things. You know, eventually with the retro day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. There is just so much to talk about. Now, if you are new to this show, the way it works is for the first 25 minutes or so, our little gang of retro gaming enthusiasts, you know us guys, we've loved video games for our entire lives. And we give you a bit of an update on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech over the last seven days. And we do often get people who get in touch and say they really enjoy the news part of the show because we all have busy lives you know a lot of people haven't got time to go through google and twitter and youtube and kind of you know find out what's going on so we give you a nice little summary of the top stories over the last seven days and i find you know since we've been doing this show i'm a lot more on top of what's going on in the world of retro gaming than i ever was before you know finding out about all these projects and everything that's got so much to keep on top of every week and it's like we spot individual news stories as well. Like our Discord lets us know as well, but uh, we all have different tastes. And when it all kind of comes together, like Joe will bring something up and be like, oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing. Sometimes I send over all these articles because like Dan says, we're like we're more on top of it than we've ever been Like before we even did the podcast and stuff like that. And I sent over like eight things I've seen about the SNES and then it's like, Okay, we, we're not the SNES hour, do you know what I mean? We're not the Super Nintendo hour. So then Ravi sends over, like, you know, he's got a really cool story about the Dreamcast coming up today, which I missed. So, yeah, we we definitely get all different kind of like the things we're into as well, you know, coming together for, for one awesome 25-minute news slot. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the second half of the show, this is where we really come into our own, and we welcome on a veteran of the video games industry. And we've had over... I'd say about 275 guests on this podcast, maybe even more actually, because some episodes we have about two or three on, don't we? So it's like, you know, we talk to people that we grew up reading about in magazines, people who made the video games that shaped our childhood, people that ran the companies, people that wrote for the magazines. And also, we like to explore systems that we haven't got a lot of knowledge about, because, you know, doing this show is a learning experience for us as well. And today, we're going to be exploring the world of the MSX now, Ravik, give us a bit of a summary about the MSX for, you know, people like maybe me and Joe who are not too clued up on it. The MSX was a computer standard 
that was actually released. So like, like the 3DO, you know, lots of different companies created them. So Philips, Sony, Sanyo, Hitachi, Toshiba, Pioneer, Casio, Yamaha, JVC. There's so many versions of the MSX. And we're talking to a guy that I've wanted on the podcast ever since we started. And this is uh, Rames Wicktop. And he basically was a Dutch MSX owner. And the, the MSX scene wasn't very big in the UK, but in the Netherlands, it, it was actually really huge. And for some really strange reasons. Now, Vamas, he worked for PC Active magazine. So he's the ed- editor-in-chief, and that's a huge magazine in the Netherlands and Belgium. But also, he was the editor-in-chief for MSX magazine, and that ran from 1987 to 1995. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, Osprey on top of things, working for a magazine back in the day, especially in that era before the internet, you know, kind of really took over for news. You had to be keeping your eye over everything that was happening, I imagine. Yeah, and like this machine as well, it was it was very based in Japan and, you know, there were games like Metal Gear on it and uh, there, there were some huge titles and it was a very powerful machine for the time. So, you know, this interview is a bit of an education for us because he's like the resident expert on that and it's just great talking about a system that we know hardly anything about. Yeah, it's like you said, I mean, it was a Microsoft standard, wasn't it? Meant to be, like you said, a bit like the 3DO, it was going to be a platform that, you know, would have a common set of hardware architecture. Because back in the day, in the 80s, you remember home computers. None of them were compatible with each other. If you had a Spectrum, it wouldn't work with Commodore 64 games. Or if you had an Amstrad, you know, it wouldn't work with any other company, a PC, for example. So really, this was an idea to get everyone on the same page and mean that, you know, games programmers and software programmers had an easier life, really, which, you know, is, is kind of what happened now with the rise of the PC. It was kind of a proto-PC, really. And, you know, there were some famous titles. Like you said, particularly, it was quite successful in Japan. So you had stuff like a Metal Gear started on there, Bomberman and at Puyo Puyo. But it is going to be interesting to chat to Vamers and kind of find out a bit about what made that platform so special and also why he thinks, you know, that it was only successful in certain parts of the world. So he's going to be our special guest, Vamas Victop, coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, we do keep you updated on all the goings on in the world of retro gaming. And we do love it when rare cartridges and prototypes and beaters are found. And it does seem to be a bit of a trend recently that these kind of rare cartridges just suddenly appear on auction websites. And then, thankfully, they get dumped or demoed to the entire community. And this time, a rare SNES SA1 demo cartridge has been found and preserved. Yeah, this this is really interesting. It, ma- it makes me laugh how, like, Nintendo keep losing these things. And then, you know, they, they show up in, like, such strange places. But this showed up on eBay. And, you know, some good Samaritan bought it and uh, dumped it online for us all. So the SA1 chip, um, from what I understand, was used in a few exclusive kind of like uh, American games and Japanese games. We never actually got in it any PAL games, but the most notable game was Super Mario RPG, The Legend of the Seven Stars. Yeah. Essentially the chip, from what I understand, essentially gave you a faster RAM and also, from what I understand, better sprite scaling um, and it improved like slowdown and stuff like that. So, you know, somebody's dumped, you know, dumped the demo online for us. Uh, and you can actually watch it over on YouTube. We've got it on Nintendo Life, which you know, we'll link in the comments. It looks terrifying, the uh, <laughs> the actual <laughs> demo. Have you, have you guys watched it? Yeah, they're like two kind of tech demos, and they're just really yeah. kind of showing the amount of sprites that you can have on the screen, but also yeah. 
this kind of mad spinning effects that they've got going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's quite nauseating. And it, you know, it made, it made me feel a little bit sick trying to watch it. But essentially, yeah, the first demo, demo one on there has got, it starts off with a couple of little, I can only describe as Kirby's, little Kirby sprites. And, yeah, little, and, and it goes from Pac-Man. And it goes it from Pac-Man. Like. And it yeah. starts off with like a couple of them. And it kind of gets more and more crazy to a point where they have like 20 of each sprite just running around on this green screen with no slowdown already. And I'm guessing that's what the demo is for. It was to kind of demonstrate, look, there's no flickering. There's no, there's no slowdown. Look how fast it's running with all these sprites on screen at once. And then yeah, like, I mean, right, it, it does show you, if you're watching it, there is a um, little bit in the corner there. Where it, it actually shows you when it's switching between the Super Nintendo CPU yeah. and the SA1 and kind of what each chip is doing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the SA1 can do so much more than the, the stock CPU. Yeah. And then the second demo is, as Ravi said, it is just like scaling sprites of like Donkey Kong and Mario and Diddy Kong and Bowser, just like sprites of them just spinning on the spot against like parallax scrolling in the background. It's like and, a demo on, yeah. the, on a, another system or kind yeah, of like yeah, a yeah, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of the background in Sonic, some of it. Yeah, it did me as well, actually. The Sonic, the bonus stage from Sonic 1. But yeah, it's it's essentially, I'm guessing it's showing, look, you can have like mode 7 graphics with like parallax scrolling and all this kind of stuff. It's interesting, you know, that it's out there and that somebody's, you know, dumped it for us and stuff like that. But at the same time, kind of disappointing that we didn't get more games like that, you know, that use that, you know, in the PAL territory. But, you know, it's interesting because of, you know, the article goes on to say that, interestingly, in the last couple of years, people have actually used the SA1 chip and applied it to kind of famous SNES games and kind of said, you know, look how much better these games could have been. I, I'm with, sure with we've covered that, about. like, yeah, a f- a have, few yeah. games that have been enhanced by the SA1. Yeah, so, because I've obviously, like I say, I think, I can't think of any other games other than, you know, Super Mario RPG that had it. I think there was, a, like, Balmut Lagoon, which is a Japanese RPG and stuff like that. But yeah, it yeah, was about 34 games, apparently, that there? used it. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't popular in, or whether any came out in PAL territories, I'm not sure. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, what it kind of did is it worked with the, um, the stock CPU, mm. And it had, you know, features on there like a, a 10.7 megahertz clock speed compared to the stock 3.5 megahertz mm-hmm. CPU. Yeah. Faster RAM in there as well, two kilobytes of internal RAM, memory mapping. So really, yeah, I mean, it graphically, it could really make games sing and yeah. let the CPU get on with other things. Yeah. And there was a lot of these enhancements back in the day, like the Super FX chip was obviously the famous one. And obviously today... You can emulate these in FPGAs or mm-hmm. software emulation. But there is a really interesting post. Now, we'll link up the article that you mentioned, Joe, on Nintendo Life. But there is also a Patreon post okay. explaining this in great detail. And by great detail, I mean around 30 pages. Oh, wow. <laughs> going into everything here. Now, this was their Forest of Illusion, who oh, okay. we talked about before, yeah. who actually found this. You know, It's an account on Twitter that's dedicated to preserving Nintendo mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. and to get hold of all these kind of weird and rare, wonderful prototypes and demo cartridges um so you can actually look through and this is a patron post that's un- unlocked actually it's free for everyone to look at it actually breaks down everything that it's doing the memory mapping how the rom works and everything so if you want to go really geeky and techy i will link that I up know, as well. it's say, way beyond me i'm looking at some of the videos now just kind of, kind of put it into simpleton terms for like myself you know uh super mario world when you get the giant booze chasing you you can only have one on the screen whereas with the yep. sa1 chip you could have about eight on the screen yeah. <laughs> so you know that's just kind of showing how much more powerful it was you know and it was race it was race driving ravi that we spoke about a couple of weeks that ago, was it. ah yeah. yeah where it kind oh, of yeah. made the frame rate go up to actual like 30 frames per second rather than like two you know what i miss watching this i i do miss demo cartridges and demo discs you know mm. you used to get those to like really show off the hardware mm. like obviously famously the 
the PlayStation One, the, the uh, T-Rex, T-Rex demo. Yeah. That, that, you know yeah. the spinning sprite thing on, on the SA1 demo? That, that's what it reminded me of, the PS1 disc with all the colours going. Mm. That's what it reminded me of, yeah. Look at the power. <laughs> What's it? Yeah, I, mean, I guess hardware these days, it's more of an iteration, isn't it? But, yeah. you know, it'd be nice to see, like, a, a demo disc made by Sony that really pushed the PlayStation 5 to its absolute limits and showed you what it could do, you know? They're still uh, kind of like, oh, did you see the Unreal Engine demo recently? Oh, you know, there's still that kind of uh, thing about graphical demos. They're, they're still going on. Oh, give me a roaring T-Rex any day. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll link that up and everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com or just check your podcast app that will be in there as well. Speaking of the PlayStation 1, maybe looking at your PS1 and thinking, oh, that's a bit boring. I'd like a better looking, funkier PS1. What about making a working PlayStation out of Lego? I love this. So this comes from a retro gamer um, called Anthony John Clark. So Anthony John Clark. Essentially, how the story goes is he, yeah, he's built a PS1, a fully functioning PS1 out of Lego, which is really cool. But the story kind of starts, he found the PS, the PlayStation 1, essentially smashed up at a car boot. Um, so those of us, you know, those, you know, listening across the pond and stuff, essentially a flea market, you know, car boot sale. Um, the UK ones, as Dan always famously says, you know, you usually see master systems in a puddle. It can be a little bit sad sometimes when it goes to retro game collecting. But he found a smashed up PlayStation 1 for a pound for you know one british pound um and he thought you know for most people that's a bit of rubbish but um he got it working and essentially took the guts out of it and got it fully running um on lego but the interesting thing is he's got all the buttons and everything they're all made from lego as well (laughs) so he's not just kind of made a shell like the actual buttons and stuff are all fully functioning from lego it's it's pretty funny so yeah i'm just looking at it and like you know i'm making an amiga laptop why yeah. don't I make it out of Lego? That's just it. That's my level. You know, I can put it together. But also, he's he's done the pen trick, yeah. like creating a little Lego stump that just sticks in there and <laughs> kind of pushes in so the CD-ROM's constantly playing because obviously he hasn't got a Lego lid yeah. to close on there. That's really yeah. smart. You know, you could, you could modify this really easily. And uh, do you think he stuck it all together or is it going to collapse in your hands? I wouldn't. I, I I imagine he's probably not stuck it together. I mean, he might have done. It, I mean, it does have a little, you know, slightly unfinished look to it. You know, like you say, it's it's not got the the, the lid to it. It's not got a top to it. But maybe that's his next, you know, for his next trick. <laughs> you know, he's going to have a proper lid on there. The disc is fully exposed, yeah. isn't it? Just spinning there on the top of it, <laughs> and all the wires and stuff are just there sticking out. And like Ravi says, you know, there's a little the pen trick going on there. But you know, it's certainly interesting, and, it, and it's funny because you know, because like Nintendo have recently done like all different super mario um nintendo sets and they even did the actual lego nes which obviously Mm. wasn't a real nes it was just a lego one you know it's just interesting to see like ravi says it's on that kind of level of like i'm gonna make it out of lego and and the lego is probably more expensive um oh god yeah than than the actual (laughs) hardware i've been watching lego masters by the way it's quite good (laughs) (laughs) get him on lego masters there you go (laughs) yeah make retro consoles on lego masters that would be great 3D printing is cool, but this is, like, next level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, props to him as well for bringing a dead PS1 back to life. You know, a lot of people would have just left that there, wouldn't they? You know, yeah, exactly. Rotting away, so uh, giving it a new lease of life, that's very cool. Now, this is something that we're not going to hear anymore. There's nowhere else like it. PC World. Not that we've heard that for, like, 20 years anyway. But apparently, <laughs> PC World is vanishing from the UK high street, along with Carphone Warehouse and Dixon's. These are all names 
you know, have been around for decades now on the high street. I mean, Dixon's not so much anymore. That used Curry, to be... Curry's um, PC world, Dan. Yeah, Curry's PC world. Well, it is. I mean, for, for, again, context for people that don't live in the UK, we used to have all these separate shops, you know, Carphone Warehouse, as you'd imagine, sold car phones. Well, <laughs> and we were well, talking about wait, this on, car on Discord, weren't we? sold car phones and, like, then it sold mobile phones and everybody buying mobile phones were probably clueless about a car phone and what the hell it was, but it was still called Carphone Warehouse and it continued under that brand because the brand was so strong. And like, yeah, I can imagine so many people have used it and just gone, what the hell is a car phone? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to get a phone anyway. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, this is a brand that is still on our high street now. You know, at the time of recording this, it's going to be vanishing soon, according to this story. Uh, but yeah, the story really is that Curry's, who own Dixon's Car Phone Warehouse and PC World, are now just going to be rebranding them all as Curry's. Because, um, you know, which makes sense for them. They have that name. And, you know, it's a brand that's been on the British high street since the 1800s, 1884. Um, curry started so rather than having all these separate brands they're going to bring them all together just under the brand of curries but it does mean that we're not going to be seeing pc world and dixon's and carphone warehouse on the high street anymore but you were talking then about car phones and we had a bit of a chat in our uh, discord about this as well did you ever use a car phone back in the day oh god and like we were chatting in discord and they said that the car phones reception would only kind of work in the cities so i guess it was for like guys driving around london who'd be like I'm going to call up this guy. And it was £1.50 a minute as well. <laughs> See, which, there, I, I, I've never seen one in person. They're a little bit before my time. I always just associate them over um, Die Hard and limousines, you know, because the, the guys at Argyle is on one, like the whole way through Die Hard. The film. I, I think even in the 60s or 70s, the police had them. Like oh, really? The old, old kind of receiver. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how they work, though. But also, the name Curry's really doesn't say tech to me. I know it's been around for years, but it says, like, Rogan Josh or Vindaloo. You know? <laughs> yeah, it makes me hungry when I read it. So, it's funny that you mentioned that Dixon's is going from the high street. Dixon's went from the high street in 2006. So, yeah, so they... but Dixon's, is, it's been in airports. Yo, okay, yeah. All right, you got me there. You did get me there. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever go, it is weird because, yeah, Dixon's used to be on every high street. And that was, I remember, I remember getting my Amiga 500 mm. from Dixon's, you know, when I was a kid. And I always remember actually going in one day because I think, I think my computer broke and we took it back. Yeah. And I remember the guy in there, he was like, you know, some typical salesman on commission. And I'd have been like, what, 10 years old. And like my mum and dad were looking at something else and he goes, oh, kid, kid, do you want a light gun for your computer? And I'm like, yeah. Like, you know, thinking he's giving me one for free. You know what, there it is. Look at all these games you can get. All these games look great. Yeah, tell your mum and dad, it's only £199. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. They're not going to go for that. Yeah. <laughs> kid, kid power. But also I remember yeah. like when all the mobile phones came out, you'd have individual stores. So you'd have like Vodafone, Orange and stuff. Yeah. And they'd all be trying to push their own kind of brands and their own deals Whereas if you went to Carphone Warehouse, they kind of pushed them all. So you got a bit more of a kind of balanced view when you were buying phones back in the days. Yeah, because I remember my daddy actually worked for a company who gave him a, a van in around probably 94, and there was a car phone in there. One day we were stuck in traffic, and I said to my dad, can I ring mum and tell her we're going to be late on the phone? He went, well, you're really quick. Like I said, it was £1.50 a minute. So literally it was like, we'll be back soon, bye. I had to put the phone down really quickly. <laughs> but it felt all so cool you, to me. Was, I'm wrap up, up. <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> yeah. the reception on it. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, and PC World again. I mean, you know, I've, I've got memories of PC World. It's um, not something I remember going to. I don't know how long it's been in the UK, but I remember it from about the late 90s going to PC World. My strongest memory, this is going to make me sound like a total nerd, as if I didn't already, is queuing up outside PC World in Lincoln in the rain in around October 2001 before they opened to get a copy of Windows XP. That is really nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what? It's interesting that it's going because of, I think I've shopped in Curry's three times maybe. And that's when, funny, you know, funny enough, it was when I was first getting like, you know, becoming a, a homeowner and stuff and parents are helping you out and stuff. My in-laws took us to Curry's PC World and bought us a fridge freezer and a dishwasher. But interestingly, the only thing I've ever bought myself from Curry's PC World was Resident Evil Village, which I actually bought about two weeks ago because it was sold out everywhere on Xbox One other than Curry's. So I got wow. it from Curry's. And so it's like the first time I ever buy something from there myself. I think I got like, the... Oh, it's going. <laughs> the wireless adapter for the Xbox 360. I think that's oh, the only yeah. thing I ever bought from there just because but, I wanted to play wirelessly and it was yeah, the closest yeah. place. You know? So I say Curry, it's not going, is it? It's just becoming Curry's though, isn't it? Yeah. So. I mean, the thing is, the name PC World... It kind of brings back memories of going in there in like, you know, 98, 99. And it was full of like, you know, white and beige tower PCs and CRT monitors. And gradually over the years, the computer sections shrunk more and more and more. And then they had this merger where they're called Curry's PC World. And now half the shop is like washing machines mm-hmm. and smart light bulbs and that kind of thing, isn't it? The name PC World is less relevant to what they do these days. So it did kind of feel like a relic of the past. It's, so it's, it's full of iPads. <laughs> yeah, that's all it is. It's, it's iPads and uh, sandwich cookers, like sandwich fryers. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee machines yeah. and yeah, sound bars and TVs and stuff. So it, it doesn't really make sense, I guess, to have a dedicated retailer just for PCs. Of course, they're such a commodity product now, but um, it is sad that these names are going. And Dixon's, even when, you know, when I'm in the airport and this Dixon's was kind of relegated to when you go through the checkout and in the duty-free area, you know what's going there? I remember, I think you and I, Ravi, were having a look around an airport. Yeah, It might yeah. be Manchester or somewhere, and um, we're on our way to a show in Norway or something or Germany. And there's like a, a 32-inch iMac. And I'm like, who's buying that from GT3 <laughs> and bringing that on the plane? in your luggage? <laughs> this is your hand-held luggage. You're playing the Switch on it on the plane. <laughs> and, and they jump on you as well. The guys there are like, oh, yeah. hi, do you want to buy this? And you know, straight yeah. away. A 65-inch TV would look great in your hotel room in Italy when you go. Like, Did yeah, they have yeah, duty-free as well? Was that why they were in the airports? Because they were in the duty-free area, so maybe you got it yeah. a bit. But then you'd have to probably do delivery on it as well. But it seemed the name Dixon's always brought back a load of memories. And I always had a little look in just because, you know, it was Dixon's. But obviously they're going to get renamed to Curry, Curry soon as well. So uh, it is sad to see some icons of um, British technology companies kind of vanishing and uh, coming number one under umbrella. But um, it does make no, sense. They're I missing think, but... a trick. They should do a Tandoori and a PS5. <laughs> and <laughs> that would be the ultimate thing. Ravi, it's half past five in the afternoon. I've not eaten all day. Stop, you make me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about something else, kind of following on from a story we were chatting about last week, actually. Um, that really cool Wii handheld system. Now this is where a guy had got all the guts from a Nintendo Wii, crammed them all into a handheld system, put a screen in there as well, and uh, made that a workable console. Now someone's done the same with the Sega Dreamcast. Yeah, this is mad. It's called the uh, DCSX. And... Uh, It's got original Dreamcast hardware in there, but it's been cut down, like we mentioned last week, where they're kind of trimming devices to fit into other ones. It was a Wii last week. And uh, this this is really interesting. 
He's uh, cut it down, created this little unit that basically has a screen on it. It has the VMU built into it as well. Mm. So the VMU is displayed at the bottom. You can save your games, do all of that. It's got the thumbstick and the kind of original vibes. It's in a 3D printed case. And it's also running GDMU, which is essentially the SD card on it. So just kind of describe it. Obviously, it's 3D printed, but it does look really nice. It's essentially a Dreamcast controller with the VMU built in with a very nice screen attached to the top. But Speakers on it as well. Yeah, with speakers on it as well. But he's done it in such a design, it genuinely looks like something Sega would have put out during the kind of like that that early 2000s, you know, kind of like where, you know, white kind of look they've got. It looks official. You know, he's done a really good job of this and he's selling these on eBay, isn't he? Yeah, so um, it's it's in a variety of colours as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's 3D printed, but like the quality of the 3D print mm. looks really good. Yeah, it does look really uh, good. They, they've cracked it on this one. And uh, just really interesting. I think maybe he's gutting uh, a Dreamcast as well. So this is going to cost quite a bit, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, so he's selling them for $600. Um so from what I understand, so you were telling me earlier on, they don't have a disk drive in them. They're running off SD card, but they're actually using real Dreamcast hardware on the inside of it. So the VMU looks like there's a real VMU in there. Yeah, it's got um, the little matrix screen in there. Yeah, and then it's actually got, you know, the guts of a Dreamcast in it. So, you know, he, he's having to get Dreamcasts and essentially take them apart to build this and then put it into the, you know, into the 3D printing. And obviously... You know, he has stated in the description that it does take two weeks for him to build one of these, you know, in his spare, in his free time kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not going to rush out to buy one at $600, but it's really cool. And it would just feel like, you know, even though it didn't exist, like it would probably feel like such a nostalgia trip to play one. And, you know, probably just blow people's minds if you just brought, busted one out on the plane or on the train or something. Yeah. He's, he's got like um, four hours battery life in there as well. Oh, the screen's yeah. only 480p, but to be honest, the size that it is, that's, I, all, I, that's all you really need, isn't it? I feel like it's something Dan would bust out, like, you know, like you just get it out of his bag and be like, oh, I'll just play a bit of Shenmue 2 on the go. <laughs> Sorry, lads, for sounding distracted. There's a plane on my uh, portable Dreamcast here. <laughs> And there's a, a, it's NTSC as well. So, but but that doesn't matter really if you've got the GDMU. You can put anything on it. Yeah, and this does. It reminds me of looking at it. It's like it probably looks a bit fatter than an original Game Boy. It looks it's a chunky boy, you know. Yeah. This thing. It <laughs> looks like it'd be satisfying to hold. And um, the one concern I've got is it looks a bit like a sealed unit. I mean, I imagine there's a space obviously to either recharge or change the batteries. It's probably a rechargeable battery these days. But the fact that the VMU is built into the middle of it, if that's a real VMU, you know the batteries on those things only last a few days and then they start screaming every time you turn your They're, they're little on. clock batteries, aren't they? Uh, yeah. The watch batteries. Yeah. And you know what? That did cross my mind, but surely that wouldn't be an oversight. You know, he sold a couple of these already according to the eBay listing, so surely he's got them hooked up running to the battery that's in there. Although I'm looking at the first image and uh, the date on it is the 27th of November 1998, so it hasn't remembered the date. Oh dear! (laughs) So maybe he doesn't. Then maybe it will. It will (laughs) die quickly and you know start screaming at you. Oh dear! You'll have to buy one, Dan, and find out for us. Or or maybe maybe he's hacked it so it actually runs off the main power supply. But or or it could be like a Mac Mini when you open it and just a complete nightmare. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Yeah. I imagine he's had to pack this thing pretty tight to fit, you know, uh, a Dreamcast, um, the GD-ROM in there and 
the uh, the screen all into one little unit that's about the size of a Game Boy. But um, the things these hardware hackers do never ceases to amaze me, you know. When did you think you'd ever get... So when you could just do this in emulation, and that'd be really easy, but the fact that these people want to use the original systems and hardware just makes it way cooler. They've just got to go extra, haven't they? Yeah, kind of outdo each other. So um, look forward to seeing what they'll do next. Now let's talk about this. Um, something that is probably slightly over Joe and I's head, if I'm honest. This is uh, a retro Isocard. Now I know what an Isocard is. That is for uh, old school PCs. This was kind of before the days of um, PCI cards. So it was, you know, your slot cards into your PC and you'd have like a sound ISA card, a network one as well. I've actually got a 486 under my desk with ISA slots in there as well. The only thing about them is a lot of them weren't plug and play back in the day, you know, kind of pre-Windows 95. You'd have to configure the uh, the DMA and the IRQ addresses and everything like that. That could be an absolute nightmare. But now a device has come along for really old PCs. If you're rocking a PC with a CGA display, which was... That came out before VGA. What's the difference between VGA and CGA then? Is it just less colours? I, I think so. And uh, higher resolution modes can be done in VGA. Um, mm. This card is called the Graphics Gremlin. And, you know, when I went to America, everybody was after these kind of CGA monitors and EGA as well. They were um, collecting them for the IBM machines and the really early ones with the ISAs and... You see channels. Yeah, the first PCs used CGA, didn't they? The yeah, first IBM PC. and yeah, and you see channels like LGR and stuff, and they're they're always he's always rocking a a CGA monitor. I think there's a certain look, and you know people are really really into having the original hardware and stuff. Well, this card is um, FPGA based, so it acts like a vintage video card, but at the input end, um, it provides a VGA port. So what you can do is you can actually use a VGA monitor but with these older machines, so you don't have to get like this rare CGA monitor. When I was in America, people were taking apart them and fixing them and then kind of, you know, just trying to get these old ones working and, and they became incredibly rare. Uh, it looks like quite a nice nice little thing to expand the machines and, and to be able to use these old school ones and uh, kind of use them on a regular old VGA board and they've got some really nice silk screened kind of printed instructions on the little board as well yes i'm looking at cga its highest resolution was 640 by 200 and um 16 colors on cga so yeah this is like you know the computer graphics card these are the ones that were on the original ibm pc back in 1981 so if you are rocking a monitor of you know if you are rocking a pc of that vintage and yeah, your old school monitor dies and you want to connect it to something a little bit more modern. I mean, you know, we're calling VGA modern here, but that kind of dates <laughs> from about 35 years ago as well. Um, but I guess it does give you a few more options than having to just rely solely on your old CGA monitor. Yeah, and I guess as well, like some of these graphics cards are pretty old school and dying and stuff, you know. Um, so they might be in a limited quantity themselves. So getting uh, one of these new cards done with FPGA just, just makes it a lot easier and means you kind of running all on new equipment, but you could use it for just testing machines and stuff like that and then use your original CGA setup or uh, EGA, old school monitors. Yeah, and if you're like us, you don't need an excuse to buy stuff like this, do you? You just say, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll buy it. <laughs> so we'll link that up and everything else we talked about this week, all in our show notes. You don't have to Google around for all these stories. We put them all at theretrohour.com. Now, something that we started last week and we're getting a great reaction to is tell us about your favourite retro gaming shop. Now, by this, we don't mean the shop that you used to go to 
30, 40 years ago to buy your old Spectrum games. We mean stores that you go to today that are keeping retro alive. The shops are obviously, many of them around the world have been closed for a lot of the last year. They need a bit of a helping hand. And we want to give shout outs to amazing shops that sell retro goodies. And we've been inviting you to get in touch and tell us about the store that you go to to get all your retro gear. And we've had loads of them in as well. This week, this one looks quite cool. This is one in Swindon. Yeah, uh, you guys need to check the images of this because this place looks like Valhalla. Yeah. It's like I've got it open now. Absolutely <laughs> this amazing. This is floor to ceiling, floor to ceiling of retro games. Yeah, so this consoles. is called Retro Games Swindon and a guy called Rich contacted us and he said, I discovered this shop during lockdown and I have to say it's a dream come true. During the last year, I've rediscovered my old consoles and even bought ones I've never had back in the day, like a Dreamcast. I've never visited a proper retro store and then uh, discovered Retro Games HQ by accident. Um, the shop's fantastic with an excellent range of Sega, Nintendo, Sony, software and hardware. The SNES N64 is particularly impressive and the owner, Pete, is really friendly and the service is excellent. And this place looks absolutely mental. It's inside a shop called Homes Music in Swindon. So it's kind of based in this music store. But um, looking at the pictures, you know, it's it's got Game Gear. They even sell promotion games that were done for the PlayStation. Um, repair CDs as well. And they've got games from all different eras. I'm sure you guys are drooling at the images that I've put up. Well, I'm looking at the um, the Atari Jaguar that they have in one of their um, glass cases here, um, complete with cannon fodder, Alien vs. Predator, Cybermorph, the controller Tempest there as well. It looks a gorgeous example of the Atari Jaguar, their pride of place in the middle of the store. They've also got, um, this is really cool, they've got like an original Xbox store demonstration unit. You know, we used to go in and you'd have like a monitor and the, the console yeah, from back in the day. It looks like an original Xbox and the 360 one kind of merged this, together. This place looks really worth a visit, doesn't it? Like, we should actually get out there and go and check it when we're in Swindon. Like, they've, they've got a Vectrax, Ravi. They've got a Vectrax. <laughs> It'll be gone soon. <laughs> they've got arcade machines as well. Pac-Man Defender, I see there as well. Like, full-size arcade cabinets you can play in store too. So, yeah, this looks like, you know, it's a mecca of retro yeah. gaming. Have if you you're seen the shelf, it. Joe? of n64s and all yeah, the different all the different you know all the like the watermelon ones and the orange ones and you know the see-through ones and stuff it does look really cool that you know that's, that's the kind of shop i'd go in for and just disappear for like two hours and just come out you know uh, you know with a lot lighter wallet but yeah that's awesome it, it just seems like a kind of shop you would actually kind of take a day trip to drive to you know what i mean and get into your head like right i'm gonna go spend some money there Let's do it. I imagine Saturday morning you just send to Charlie, I'm just nipping to Asda, I'll be back soon. <laughs> Come back, three hour drive Swindon, to Swindon. Yeah. <laughs> three hour drive to Swindon, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, another amazing retro shop. Keep your recommendations coming. Uh, you can check them out, retrogames-swindon.co.uk. And if you've got a favourite retro gaming store that you go to, you think deserves a mention on the podcast, anywhere in the world, you know, we're a global podcast, let us know about it. You can tweet us at RetroHourUK. Leave it in our Discord or drop us an email if it's easier. Show at theretrohour.com. Now, the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing mates at Bitmap Books. Now, they do so many incredible retro gaming books. And we've said this before. These books are not just something that you pick up and read through once. These are actually works of art, aren't they? Oh, they're, they're absolutely beautiful. And the one that we're talking about at the moment is... Commodore Amiga a Visual Compendium. And these visual compendiums are absolutely amazing. Like, 
looking at it, you know, they have the art and it's blown up in huge ways, but also they have the full kind of levels that are all spread out in there. They're covering amazing companies like Bullfrog, Blue by uh, Psygnosis, Sensible as well, System Free. It's full of interviews as well. And the thing I love about it is the quality, like it's hardback, but you've also got this kind of beautiful sleeve that you can slip it into, which really helps protect the book. You know, I've had this for a couple of years, actually, because uh, it's a it's a reprint of the Commodore Amiga Visual Compendium. And this one is still as in as good condition. You know, I just opened it up and it's still got that new book smell and it's just like absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, the quality of these is second to none. And uh, this book, I mean, it goes into details, you know, from early titles like Defender of the Crown, and then it goes into stuff like, you know, Marble Madness and Rainbow Islands, and then uh, Cannon Fodder, Speedball Worms, you know, all these legendary mega titles, 420 pages and showcasing more than 140 of the biggest titles and brings them to life. They look so vivid, you know, the way they capture the artwork and the loading screens and the sprites and everything. And you get quotes and commentary from renowned Amiga artists, developers and publishers, RJ Michelson here, Sid Meier, Ron Gilbert, Tobias Richard, Dave Gibbons, many more as well. And also kind of gives you the origins of the hardware and talks about the demo scene. So if you're a fan of the Amiga, this is a real love letter to it. So you can get that and of course check out their entire range of incredible retro gaming books and support the Retro Hour by supporting our sponsor. Have a look on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Now, before we get into our chat with Vamas Victop talking all about the world of the MSX, let's just take a moment to spread a bit of love to our wonderful patrons. Now, these are people who allow us to keep doing the Retro Hour podcast for you each week, week in, week out. Now, you might think, you know, this show comes out every week. They're probably part of like a media company or a production company. We're just three guys who do this off our own back. Totally. If we were part of a media company, we wouldn't be covering the MSX. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like great to be an independent podcast. And like the, the only way that we can really survive is with you guys. You know, you've helped provide us with a studio that we can record from each at home. And that's three. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, three studios. So we can keep doing this podcast each week. And yeah, we do have sponsors who help us out as well, you know, pay us a bit of a wage so we can take our friends and family out for a bit of dinner, maybe once a month. But really the, the thing that keeps this podcast going is Patreon. That is, you know, guaranteed income that pays for all our server costs. It pays for the hosting, pays for our software. We need to edit the show, all our VST plugins and our mixers, our microphones, everything that we need to do this show and bring you these amazing guests each week. Honestly, we could not do it without the support of our patrons. And we're not all take, take, take. We give back as well. Oh, totally. Like, we, we, we basically do uh, some fantastic stuff with the patrons. We've got a Discord channel at the moment that's really popping off. We do the After Hours podcast as well, where we're kind of behind the scenes. We get to relax. It's, it's After Hours. We can just talk about nostalgia, memories, and kind of be a bit more naughty than we are on the show. Um, we've also got some fantastic stuff like the patrons meet up as well. And that that's really good fun. I really enjoy you know, actually seeing everybody on the screen and having a chat and sharing knowledge as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll ask questions and uh, people will be like, oh, have you seen this cool thing? Or, you know, I've got a problem with my machine, you know, maybe someone in the group can help. And Because, I mean, it is kind of like a virtual users group and we'd love you to be part of it as well. So if you want to get access to not only the uh, exclusive podcast that we do at least once a month, the Retro Hour After Hours, you also get the normal podcast ad-free and early 
you know, some weeks you get it three days early. Um, you'll also be helping out the show. You get invited to our private Discord server on there too. And really, just know, have the satisfaction that it's thanks to you that this podcast comes out every single Friday. And we will give you a big thank you by giving you a shout in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, a big thank you to Kyle Havelka. Darren Williams. John Rockefeller. Fred. And Charlie Pierce who all backed us on Patreon. We really appreciate that, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, all the details are on our website at theretrohour.com. So we'll have more news for you on next Friday's show. There will be another Retro Hour After Hours podcast out in the next week as well, this time delving a special all about the Sega Mega Drive. So we're going to do a full episode just piling on the love for the Mega Drive. So um, we'd love you to uh, check that out as well. That'll be out in the next week. And right now, we're going to dive into the world of the MSX with this week's special guest, Vamas Victop, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show, where we welcome on our special guest. Now, today, it is so interesting that we're going to be getting some stories about a platform that yeah, I remember reading a lot about back in the day, but we didn't really have much exposure to here in the UK, the MSX. And today, we're going to be joined by uh, someone who was the um, the active editor-in-chief of the longest-running MSX magazine in the Netherlands and also worked on um, PC Active magazine as well and lots more. So let's welcome on our guest this week, the wonderful Vames Victor. Hello, Vames, how are you? I'm fine myself, and yourselves? Very good, thank you. Now, um, we're really excited to talk to you and um, you know learn something new today because this is a lot of stuff that we didn't have here in the UK, you know, platforms like the MSX. But, I mean, kind of winding your story back to the beginning, what initially got you interested in computers and do you remember where your journey began? I do, actually. I used to be studying biology. I got some statistics during that study. That got me interested again in what can you do with computers. And the first thing that I knew about computers was that I got myself a Texas Instruments 59, or actually I started off with a 58. Those were the programmable calculators of that day. And you're talking about the sort of stuff they took on the moon missions. And the reason why I changed very quickly within a day from the 58 to the 59 was that the 59 had a magnetic card system that you could store your program. I still recall typing in 300, 400 steps in a very simple programming language and then realizing if I turned off the current, all my programming would be gone. Next day, I changed it for the twice as expensive 59. So, you know, when microcomputers arrived, what were the popular machines in the Netherlands then initially? They came in several waves. First of all, you had the period where possibly 25 or 50 people in the whole of the Netherlands would be into microcomputers and they'd be building their own rigs and they'd be important stuff from the United States. But when it really started catching on, the first thing that really got advertising was the ZX80. That did rather well in the Netherlands, ZX80, ZX81. Actually, my first real computer, something with a real keyboard with letters on it instead of only numbers, was a ZX81. And I hated that machine. I had a memory expansion in the back, and whenever it wobbled, everything was gone again. So I ended up soldering it to the motherboard, (laughs) and then it was too unwieldy to, to handle anyway. No, I really started going with home computers when I got myself a Commodore 64. I find it interesting that you mentioned about your your solution to the wobbly RAM pack there. We've had so many guests who give us different things that they did, you know, using blue tack or gaffer tape, some guy used the other <laughs> week as well. It's like everyone had their own solution to stop it moving around. 
Uh, but if you had fixed that problem, you still had the bloody keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a machine to work on. It's uh, There were too many corners cut by Sir, Sir Clive Sinclair there. Well, obviously, I mean, in terms of software, I know over here in the UK, um, you know, the piracy scene was everywhere in the early days of micros, you know, people swapping cassette tapes and disc copy parties. I mean, was there a lot of that going on in the Netherlands too? Yes, there was, but I always kept very far from that. Actually, MSX Computer Magazine uh, made a very firm point of being totally against piracy and trying to explain to the punters that if you pirated programs, there will be no more programs coming. It was rather hard to get across with some of the idiots, but by and large, we did quite well, actually. And uh, were there many programs that were published in the magazines that you would, uh, you know, type in yourself? And uh... Oh, yes. I'd say in the early years, some 20, 25%, even up to 30, was dedicated to listings. Listings, by the way, for a computer uh, magazine is a very two-edged sword in a way because whenever you reach whenever you get contacted by readers it will be in most cases to tell you that there is an error in your listing and they can't find it you always have to explain them there's an error in your typing and you should find it yourself (laughs) that's how you learned isn't it by you know typing them in wrong and then fixing it uh yeah but most of them there were some very obnoxious types there that really were sure that everything had been typed all right until you started making them read out the bloody listing over the telephone, and then you'd always spit, spot a mistake, sometimes at the third page, and that was not funny. Well, which magazines were kind of out at the time, and uh, what made you want to write about these machines and move into journalism? <laughs> Writing actually was a bit of an accident. I was still studying biology, and at one, I was in the meantime, I was working on a mainframe, I was working for the uh, Amsterdam City Council, working out traffic counting stuff, et cetera, et cetera. That also got me acquainted with punched cars and everything you had in those days. I had a thrown back. My physician came by. He saw me sitting there in the middle of whole piles of listing of the, the old white computer paper. At that time, I was quite busy uh, cracking uh, the, that mainframe, I, I, I got far in that mainframe. I got very far. It would have been punishable by law in these days. And he said, are you doing anything with computers? So I said, well, Joost, I hope your diagnosis on, on, on my back will be just as acute as this observation. And he introduced me to a friend of his who happened to be an editor of a video magazine. And he asked me, could you write an article after I had been telling her about home computers? I was a real missionary in those days if it came to home computing. And after talking to the man for two hours, he said, well, could you write an article about it? And I told him that the last thing I had written was some, yeah, I don't know, some, some report while I was studying biology. And I really doubted if I could write. I have to say that I proved myself wrong, but it took me six weeks on a typewriter, that first article. Do you remember what the article was? I think the, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I had been writing about the possibility of, you, of course I know, of using a home computer, a ZX81, in order to generate titles for home-produced video. It was a lot of hot air, actually, but it was fun writing it. So then, I mean, the MSX is something that I, I know you've covered a lot in your career. And as I mentioned in the intro, I mean, the MSX, I remember reading about it in magazines, but it didn't really make a 
a dent in the UK computer scene. Can you give us a bit of background on who was behind the MSX and, you know, what did the initials stand for and who was involved in it? What was, what was the aims of the platform? The initials are quite shocking. Microsoft Extended, MSX. MSX was dreamed of by a man, I don't know his proper Japanese name, but he was known in the West as Kei Nishi, Dr. Kei Nishi. And Kei Nishi, apart from the fact that the man speaks perfect English, I, I met him a number of times. Kei Nishi was at that time president, Honsho, big man of the Far Eastern operations from, of Microsoft. He was involved in a thing called ASCII company, which is a Japanese company. He's also been involved, I think, sideways with Konami, and that's a name you uh, might recognize. And Kei Nishi came up with the idea of MSX, with the idea, with the, the, the concept of creating a computer standard instead of all the different companies making their own computers, which in no way were compatible with each other. And Nishi's idea was that, well, if, if you join forces, a very Japanese idea, actually, if you join forces, if it comes to the standard of the home computer, you'll have more leverage and you'll have better programming and you'll have more marketplace. That was the whole plan behind it. And, well, apparently he was able to uh, convince Bill Gates, convince Microsoft, because at first Microsoft was behind it, only it, MSX, well, if it made a small dent in England, it made no dent in America. MSX was basically at that stage a very Japanese concept. And for some reason, Philips got involved, good old Dutch Philips. Philips and Sony are normally seen in those days as fighting between each other, very, very competitive, both in the same markets. And if you look at the video scene back in those days, the, the old tape video, yes, you had Sony with uh, its VHS system. You had Philips with the uh, P2000, if the memory serves me. And they fought really like crazy. If you look at home computing, on the other hand, Philips wasn't that involved in home computing. Philips had a text processor, a word processor, which was in the in the real in 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 the the office market. And when it came to home computing, Philips had nothing. So I suppose that when when Sony proposed that they'd work together, that really caught on in Eindhoven. So that's the reason I think that that MSX got quite popular at first in the Netherlands because. Philips is based here. Philips did a lot of public relations here on MSX. And Philips started pushing the machines with advertisements in uh, the newspapers, but also by trying to get the press behind it. And, well, the press where they had most contacts at that time would have been the consumer electronics press. And then not only the uh, stereo hi-fi, but also the video scene. And the first, well, the MSX Computer Magazine was not in, uh, made by me at first. It, it was a proposal that I got from a man called Ronald Blankenstein. And Ronald was the owner of a publishing company, which was good in, in video magazines. So that's the background there. Uh, Ronald was being pushed into MSX or being drawn into MSX, actually, by Philips and by Sony, who also were quite active in the Netherlands at that time. Uh, 
And that's the reason why Ronald came up to me. I had been writing for his magazine, his video magazine then for a number of months. And he said, well, shall we try an MSX magazine? And I told him, no, that, that won't work. And I told him, no, that won't work because I had been reading the English trade press where they all said, no, that won't work, MSX. Was there a, an attempt to kind of get to these other regions and uh, distribute the MSX? That I don't, well, I know there were, were attempts, but but if you look at the dev- development of MSX worldwide, uh, you know that MSX is still a big name in Brazil, no doubt. You know that MSX is still quite active in Spain, of all places. There were a good number of Arabian MSXs, which actually had Arabian character sets and Arabian keyboards. MSX was also developed with the idea of the real international market, not only the English language market, but MSX was quite capable of handling different character sets. And of course, they had to make it that way because of Japan. In Japan, in those days, English was a very foreign language for most Japanese. If you wanted to sell a computer in Japan, it had better been able to write Japanese. And what that did in the background, if you look at the technical side of how the whole text system was was organized, was being handled, made it quite easy to say, okay, well, we'll make it Russian this time, or we'll make it we'll make it Arabian this time. Because MSX was uh, a computer standard and that that kind of being based in Japan, did that mean that other companies like uh, Daewoo and Fujitsu, uh, Goldstar, Hitachi, uh, get on board? uh, Kind of, was it a lot easier being based in Japan and with America as well? What happened there was that ASCII company, Keinishi, Keinishi's, in those days, was quite famous in Japan. He's one of the types that would give a, a lecture for open to the public and earn about 20,000 quid was given the one lecture. That was the status Kenishi had in those days. So when Kenishi put his weight behind it, that really helped for the Japanese scene. Uh, MSX was mostly a Japanese standard. I think there's I'm aware of at least 100 or 250 different Japanese MSX models of a good number of different manufacturers. If you look outside that, well, what do you have? You have Gold Star indeed. You have one or two other Korean manufacturers. You have Philips. I'm not aware of any MSX computers made by any non-Japanese or Korean company except Philips. So you might say, actually, that the MSX standard was a great success in Japan and the rest of the world, being a little bit of a joke that the rest of the world wasn't all that big in this case. MSX found its foothold in a couple of countries, and there it survived for quite some time, up to today, actually. If you look at the Dutch scene, it's still there. But MSX, well, if you go back to, to, to that time, like, let's say 1985, 1986, there were MSX magazines in Europe in a good number of countries. I have German MSX magazines lying around. I have English MSX magazines. I have French MSX magazines. I have Japanese. I have Japanese as well, of course. But I also have Spanish. I have Portuguese language from Brazil, no doubt. MSX magazines, but it never caught on. For instance, in in the same way as 
Commodore Cardon, and I don't know why, because MSX basically was the superior system in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, MSX was superior to Commodore. But Commodore had more marketing power and was based in America. I think that was a good difference as well. The only MSX model that ever really got any, that really got sold, that really filled a niche in America was the Yamahas, the, 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 the specialized music MSX computers. Well, in the Netherlands, how were people using MSXs? Were they home computers mainly or were they used in educational settings? And was there kind of any deal with governments? No deals with governments as far as I know which I felt was a big pity and a stupid mistake to boot. MSX in the Netherlands was at first marketed as uh, a machine that could be both a home computer but also a business machine. If you look at early MSX advertising by Philips, you'll find bookkeeping programs, you'll find word processing programs, you'll find spreadsheets, you'll find office applications. But that did not last long because MSX was launched at a rather high price point or at actually the normal price point at that time, which would be around, I'd say your introductory MSX, if you look at the MSX1 models of the day, would have been around 800 pounds here in the Netherlands. Mm. But what happened was that MSX failed rather shockingly in the UK. And while it failed, there were whole loads of MSX on the boat on their way to England because all sorts of uh, importers had, had, had gambled that MSX would really take off. So quite a number of containers full of MSX machines were sold off at rock bottom prices to Dutch importers while still on the boat, whilst even not in Europe yet. That meant that all of a sudden the Dutch market got flooded by very cheap MSX machines. And when you could get an MSX1 machine at that stage, all of a sudden for something like three, no, I'd say 250 quid, that, that really swayed the market. And all of a sudden MSX was not anymore a serious business proposal for the office, but it was a home computer. It was the cheapest home computer around, more or less. And with very, very good capabilities for a home computer, was MSX was really a system that could play a mean game as well as do some real computing. Yeah, what, what, what followed very quickly was things like the Konami cartridges, cartridge games that uh, got imported into the Netherlands and really took off. The market swayed actually in a time period of, let's say it, it must have been three or four months from a rather serious upmarket system to a rather unserious, very much hobby-orientated, home computer-orientated, game computer-orientated system that was to become at a very, very nice price indeed. Did any other Dutch companies like uh, Tulip work with them at all? Nope. Tulip started out with some CPM-like machines, as far as I know. I have something in the attic, but it's been sitting there for the last 25 years, so I don't know yet. I, have, I found that one in, in the garbage. It was a Tulip 1, and I just put it in my attic, and it's still there. I still haven't looked at it. But Tulip at that stage was business machines, and they switched very, very quickly to the IBM PC standard. Other companies in hardware, not to speak of. We have hardware made in the Netherlands nowadays, but... That has been happening after that uh, the, the big first wave 
of MSX had been gone. What is being brought out or what has been brought out in MSX hardware here in the Netherlands has been smaller companies or not even companies, has been groups of hobbyists. And they have been making all sorts of things like memory maps and whatever. Yeah. If you look at the software part of it, Yes, there has been some very good MSX software developed in the Netherlands. A name like Radarsoft, Radarsoft, if you want to anglicize it, comes to mind. They made some beautiful games, very good programmers there. Yeah, the company called Akosoft, who uh, was not only MSX, but was rather broad when it came to, uh, to software, but it was nearly all home computer, all right. They did some rather serious programming. They had astronomical programs, for instance. They had bookkeeping. They had mostly, after that, they, they also saw on which side, which, which direction the market was taking. And they switched mostly to games as well. I find it interesting that obviously MSX was a standard, but kind of how much variance did companies have with their own particular models? I mean, was, was there much like differences with specs and like, you know, RAM and that kind of thing? And did you have a favorite MSX machine, a model that you really liked best? The MSX standard had flaws. And one of the main flaws in the MSX standard was that the uh, organization of the memory had not been laid down in brick, so to speak, or in concrete. And that meant that there, that standard, as it came to the memory banks, could be interpreted by the individual manufacturers themselves. And that was a very stupid mistake because I know, for instance, a, a big company in the Netherlands or in those days, like Homesoft, they imported a very big number of, of MSX games and other software for not only MSX, but for, for all the home computers. But if it came to MSX, they had a test bank of about 20 MSX machines sitting there in order to make sure that the programs, they, the, the samples they got, did function on all MSXs they had in that test bank, and they had to test them all. Because I don't know if this is, this, this might be getting too technical, but an MSX computer has a Z80 uh, processor. A Z80 processor has 46 uh, kilobytes of memory addressing space, and not more than that, not a Yota more. And 64 is not enough if you want to start doing some real stuff. So what happens is that those 64 kilobytes would be divided in four different pages of each 16 kilobytes. And then you started swapping those pages in and out of the system. So your address space would cover only 64. But the first six, if you, your average MSX1 in those days, your first 16 kilobytes would be the uh, the actual MSX system. The second 16 kilobytes would be your uh, MSX basic uh, interpreter. The third and the fourth one could be combined together as the uh, actually working memory, the memory where you'd be writing your program, storing your data, but would also contain your video RAM because in those MSX computers, the, the, the actual screen data were written in the user RAM and then interpreted by the video chip in order to process it to, to get to, uh, to the screen. And what you do then is you start swapping those pages if you need more space and you know you don't need something else. If, for instance, you'd be running a machine language program on an MSX in those days, 
you'd kick out dot that one page with the basic interpreter. You don't need it. You'd swap that one for a page with blank memory where you could actually have your program and your data. If you look at the finer details of that memory system, it means a lot of page swapping. It means a lot of different memory banks. It means very many choices. And those choices had not been laid down in, as I said, in concrete. And that meant that the MSX standard in that aspect, more or less, was not a standard. Uh, what were the changes and improvements going from the original MSX standard to MSX2? Mostly video-related, actually. Your MSX1 was 25 lines of 40 characters. Your MSX2 was 25 lines of 80 characters. And that makes a hell of a difference when you're programming, writing a letter, or doing whatever. But even more important, there were an other, a number of other screen modes in the MSX2, which were graphically very much more advanced than the MSX1 had. So you could write even better games. And um, were there many kind of MSX clones and compatibles? I was reading about um, in America that Spectravision had um, machines that were compatible with MSX. No, that's a, a well-known error. You, the machine you were talking about was the Spectra Video 328, I suppose. And the 328 is considered an MSX forerunner. I know that Kenishi has been involved in developing the, uh, the specs for the 328, but the 328 came out before MSX was really finalized. And if you look at the next machine that came out after that, I think that was the 738. That was a fully blown MSX, and that was actually the only MSX machine that Spectra Video, to the best of my knowledge, produced. Uh, MSX clones is an impossibility per definition, you might say, because MSX yeah. is a standard and you could just join the standard, why should there be clones? Well, what were the kind of famous pieces of MSX software as well? If you're talking about the games, I'd say the Konami series were very, very good. Those games were all cartridge-based and it wasn't only uh, Konami, mind you. If you look at the uh, magazines that we brought out in those days, you'd find all sorts of Japanese names a very a game that, to the best of my knowledge, started on MSX, for instance, was Metal Gear. MSX scene in that, that, in that period more or less split into two halves. The, the, the half that was very busy with programming. A great joy of them, a great pastime of them, was making demo discs. I don't know if those have ever passed over to England. But what they did was just write programming, for instance, to manipulate the video system in such a way that they'd have amazing effects and everybody would think, how the hell did they do that? And they, 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 even, they had contests in that sort of things. It didn't do anything. It wasn't a game. It was just showing off how good, how good you could program that video system. And the other side was indeed the people who really went into games and who started to import as individuals games from Japan and then try to translate them, because by that time, a lot of the uh, better games in Japan, the better uh, cartridge games, were, well, not text-based, they were very graphical. But if you couldn't read the Japanese, you couldn't play the game. So what happened was that, that people would have cheat sheets next to them, 
with the Japanese characters and the Dutch translations and try to work out how to play the game. And the market never got big enough for the game to be actually translated into Dutch, which was a big pity, or into English would have been even better. Yeah, the, the rule of thumb that I'd like to use here is that if it's not on cartridge, it is not the highest level. Mm. Also because the... Uh, the cartridge system, of course, fits in beautifully with the memory mapping system. If you uh, have a big game, and a game could, the, the graphics with a lot of background graphics, etc., etc., a game could easily become up to uh, a megabyte. Wow. And that means a lot of swapping. And swapping with a cartridge, because that cartridge has all the data lines, all the memory handling lines can be done very quickly and you, you know where the cartridge is and a good programmer could work real wonders with that system but you couldn't do that on on disc and definitely not on tape yeah i remember trying to play multi-load tape games and having to wait five ten minutes for the next part to load in and yeah i mean cartridge way superior obviously for yeah, those were the days <laughs> Well, you know, the Commodore Plus 4 and the Commodore 16, I remember those coming out here as kind of a response to, you know, the Sinclair machines, like that kind of low-end, low-cost market. And I believe they did have some success in the Netherlands as well. I mean, were they kind of marketed to kind of aim at that MSX low-cost market? Don't think so. I'm not sure, but I don't think so. To the best of my knowledge, by that time, the market had gelled in to different factions, and I used the word without exception, because they really fought like cats and dogs at times. They were a little bit like football hooligans, the Commodores and the MSX and the whatever you had in those days. Uh, the Atari systems were there as well, of course. If somebody would be attached to MSX, he or she would never budge to go over to a cheaper Commodore, neither the other way, I dare, I dare add. So if you were into MSX, you were into MSX. I suppose that the, the cheaper Commodore machines were... Actually, I think they were too little too late. They uh, started to appear in at the time that uh, the, the Dutch um, home comp- the Dutch cheap home computer market had been totally sawn up by the uh, machines, the write-offs from uh, the big uh, companies in England that were being routed to the Netherlands instead of the English uh, high streets. So by that time, Commodore was getting less possibilities. What Commodore was doing in those days here in the Netherlands much more was pushing the Amigas in, which was a totally different cup of tea again. When you mentioned that rivalry, have you got any kind of memories or, or stories about you know the, the rivalry with MSX owners and Commodore or other systems? I'll give you one. In those days, computer magazines had very cheap pages with small advertisements from readers. You'd invite them to send in the uh, the card, affix the post, uh, the post stamp to it and write down their advertisement and also add their five guilders because they had to pay for them. Uh, then you'd have someone in the office sitting down and typing over all those advertisements in rather bad handwriting quite often, sometimes smeared into a word processor. So you'd have pages and pages with small advertising. It was way before the internets, indeed. <laughs> and I still recall that I nearly sacked my postroom man because he had been typing over uh, the, the, the small advertisements. And all of a sudden, after it had been printed, I found an advertisement for Commodore, but spelled wrongly as Chromador. And Chromador in Dutch means something like a very badly 
constructed product which happens to coincide with co- to a co- coincidence with, with with the name Commodore. He uh, kept telling me that it really had been a slip of the pen or a slip of the finger. And in the end, I didn't believe him, but I said, oh, Jesus, I'm not going to fire that idiot over this. But it, it, it went to that length, indeed. It, so they were kind of trolling each <laughs> other in the adverts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I was quite amazed, actually. It, it, it was very strange to find a, a Commodore advertisement in an MSX magazine that also was unheard of. Uh, the MSX had, like, as you mentioned, really strong audio and sound. Did uh, having people like Yamaha on board help? I seem to recall that the uh, original sound chip was a Texas Instruments chip. I might be wrong, but I don't know. Yamaha, of course, did help, but Yamaha took MSX a totally different direction. Yamaha saw MSX as the basic system that you could add other stuff onto and so they came out with things like the i think it was called the cx5 and that was a uh it was basically an msx computer but with very much added sound possibilities and also a, a keyboard added etc etc and <clears throat> that was not what it, it the fact that it was an MSX was actually secondary for that for that machine. It was a music machine. It was a keyboard. It was a sort of spin-off from the synthesizer. Oh yes, and it was also an MSX because that was the operating system. You had the same thing actually uh, with the video standards. The MSX2 had a much better video chip, but then it got developed even further, and you got to uh, have. I know at least of two machines, uh, Philips and the Sony, that had full-fledged video editing possibilities, at least for that day and age. It all was uh, compared to what we do nowadays, rather primitive and rather very much low res. But video processing was possible on the MSX. Now, uh, accidentally, I have something here on my desk which I'm trying to sell up but haven't done yet which is a NEOS MSX S110 cartridge, which is basically uh, an MSX cartridge which I could plug into any MSX2 and start uh, doing video editing and also superimposing. That was the the first trick with MSX. All of a sudden, you could superimpose computer imagery over uh, normal video. Also, MSX was there, not as much the computer as well as the the basic system layer where those possibilities were put on, were, were, were built up on. And one of them, you know which MSX in the world, or not even that, I should put it differently. There's one MSX that really left the world. Are you aware of that? No. There was a, uh, I, I, that was a in, uh, space MSX, right? Yeah. There was a, a Sony MSX in, uh, in the Mir space station. Nice. There's even footage of uh, where where you can see it. Uh, don't ask me where. I don't know from the top of my head, but I've I've seen it there, and it was used by the Russians for uh, for video editing. So the poor bugger got burned when the station came down. Oh, <laughs> the price that would have gone for on eBay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't know. You don't know. Well, talking about you know your journalism career. I know um, you're at PC Active, which you know is the largest computer magazine in the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, what made that magazine so popular then? And um, did you really focus on taking in-depth looks at hardware and guides and stuff? What, what kind of gave it the edge? Indeed, what you say there, the inside look. 
let's put it this way. Uh, most people making computer magazines back in the day, but even now, are basically making magazines and they happen to be about computers. For me, it has a different tech. I liked computers. I knew some of the technical stuff of, around computers. And I liked telling other people about it. So I started from a computer interest making magazines. And when I had an established base there in making magazines, and I needed other people to write for me, I basically, what I always said, well, I can always teach them how to write or could edit the shite out of it and make it readable copy, but I can't teach them the technicalities nor the mindset you need to, to, to want to know and to explain. So what we looked for whenever we needed more, more people writing, and we always needed outside people writing because the field is far too big for your own editorial staff. Your own editorial staff should have basic knowledge to fish out the real stupid mistakes, but is not supposed to write about the memory mapper. We always looked for the people who had the technical knowledge as well as the savvy to be able to explain. We did the writing ourselves from their basic articles. Now, that meant that also PC Active, both MSX, but also PC Active, had a background where we did not shirk away from techniques. We didn't think, oh, that might be too difficult. We always made sure that we went the whole nine yards when explaining how something worked under the cover. And that apparently was uh, a formula for a successful magazine. And was it similar with MSX Magazine? And what, what were kind of some of your fondest memories of your time on MSX Magazine? Oh, God. You must have many. <laughs> the, the, the MSX Computer Magazine are nearly old fond memories. We had a great time. All of us had a great time making it. Um, we were just a, a bunch of crazy yahoots, you might say, who happened to blunder into making magazines. And we enjoyed it. And we, we turned out to be rather good at it as well, if I may say so myself. But it wasn't only me. There were more people there. One man, Robert Wetmar, who later also was editor-in-chief for PC Active for, I think, two or three years, well, I came across him because he had sent, he had entered uh, in a programming contest in, in the MSX magazine. And I thought, oh, Jesus, this man can write. What he had made was a disassembler, if you know that. And uh, I thought, well, this man can program. And he apparently also, uh, well, the letter isn't bad. He's able to write a little more understandable Dutch. So I uh, set out to meet him. It turned out... Robert was still at school, and he at the age of 16. Uh, he uh, started writing for me, and in the end, well, I think he worked for me for some six, seven years. And he's still a good friend. I also recall the one time that we, we always had programming contests because that meant that we could get the prizes from uh, Sony, Philips, and whoever you had, we, the prizes we never paid for ourselves. And it also meant that we got programs that we could publish again in the form of listings after polishing on them up a little bit. And it also meant that one and every now and again, you'd come across somebody who would be a good author for you, and not only for that one occasion, but who you'd really want to put on your staff as a freelancer. So contests were the word. And I recall the time that we said, computer clocks, let's have a beautiful graphical clock on your computer screen. It doesn't care how you make it. 
Uh, we don't care how you program it. We don't care about the team behind it. It can be anything. As far as we are concerned, make a water clock on screen and send in your entries with in the left upper side of the envelope, TikTok as an emblem, as a, a catchphrase. And the, the people downstairs in the mail room will start wondering again, what the hell are they doing up there? That sort of jokes. Well, um, amazingly, the MSX scene is still going. And uh, I think you actually mentioned to me that there's still an MSX show. Do you kind of keep your foot in the world and, you know, keep uh, checking what's going on at the moment? Not too much, if I'm honest. What we did a couple of years ago, it's it's over 10 years ago by now, is that, uh, well, I was the last owner of MSX Computer Magazine. So I owned, in principle, all the rights to all the articles. And it wasn't only me, but also two other people. The same with Robert Wetmar that I mentioned and some other people from from those days that said, why not digitize the whole lot and put it on a website? Why not make an official MSX Computer Magazine archive website? And that's what we did. So that means that... I still have some contacts with the MXX scene. One of the people who is still working on that website is, for instance, the man who organizes the uh, yearly MSX show, or at least it was yearly before Corona came around, near Nijmegen, Manuel, uh, he's called. And Manuel is very active in the Dutch MSX scene. So, yeah, he's one of my scouts, you might say, one of my watchdogs. And there's more people. There's people that whenever something happens that they feel that I should speak up or that I should speak about something from what happened back then that, well, I get warned and I'll show up in the forums. It is great, though. I mean, it must kind of blow your mind that people are still interested in all this stuff that happened, like, you know, <laughs> 35 years ago. Actually, it is. <laughs> yeah. Back in, <clears throat> Even back then, I, I, I made a joke every now and again that I was amazed that we had gotten that that far and that long and, that that much circulation too, because MSX Computer Magazine also had a good circulation, mind you. With a magazine with what, if I really became quite honest, had a very limited subject matter. And I said every now and again, isn't it amazing that you can get this far with what is basically Sewing Machine Magazine? What is it you can't do with a sewing machine, apparently? That more or less put it in perspective for some of the editors. <laughs> So why can people see the archive then? What's the address? Uh, it's msxcomputermagazine.nl. .nl, excellent. Well, I'll put that in our show notes as well, so um, anyone can go along and uh, check it out. I do lo- love looking at you know magazines from the time. It's just interesting to kind of find out what was really going on, and uh, you know, re- it really does give you a, an oversight into kind of the developments and the news at the time. I think it is fascinating going back, and there's so much historical, interesting stuff there, I think, in magazines. Well, the funny thing is... To my mind, in those days, I was also reading a lot of the English trade literature because I mm. just was interested in the whole subject matter. And I had a look at uh, your, what was it now again? Your new magazine, the Amiga magazine, Amiga Addict. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and you really, really nailed it down. It has the same oh, thank you. loud style as the magazines had in those days. We've tried to get the the tone right, and uh, you have, you have, you have it right on the, you have nailed it. If you look at the MSX Computer Magazine, those were the days that we 
did not use too much full color because it was too costly. MSX Computer Magazine mm-hmm. was mostly 64 plus 4, 68 pages, including cover. And of those pages, there might have been 16 pages in full color, and the rest would be black and white with one supporting color. Mm. And that has changed. And in England, even in those days, layout of computer magazines was far wilder. The, the use of language in computer magazines in England was far more complicated, far far wilder, far more popular than, than MSX computer magazine in the Netherlands ever was. We tended to, to, to try to be a rather serious magazine. And I must admit, I do prefer a physical magazine. You know, you, it's not very good taking your iPad in the bath to read a PDF. It's much, much nicer using actual paper. It's dangerous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to say, if I can't take it to the toilet, I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> but that changed, you know, with smartphones and tablets. <laughs> they get most of their reading on the toilet yeah. on smartphone. No, no, back in the day that you'd have to have a CRT under your arm. <laughs> but those days are gone. And I can't say I rue that they are gone. It has been fascinating reminiscing with you and learning about the MSX scene. I must admit, I'm quite tempted to have a look on eBay at the prices because it's a platform that I've never had exposure to before and I find it really fascinating. It's been education, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So we really appreciate you coming on and being our guest. Okay.